I believe. Well, Mags and I have been. <laughs> anyway, um, and we are talking about the latest James Bond film, um, No Time to Die, the final Daniel Craig film. So I'm joined today by Anager, Mags, and a true James Bond fan, Gerald. Say hello, everyone. Hello. Howdy. Um, yeah, so we're going to talk about No Time to Die. It is a full spoilers pod, uh, podcast, so I'm just going to put it out there super early because there are big spoilers that we're absolutely going to talk about. We're just going to talk about the ending. I don't care. You've been warned. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, No Time to Die, the last of the Daniel Craig Bonds. Um, I mean, what happens in this film? What, Too, much Too yeah. much happened. Too much happened. Yeah, I, I don't really know how I'm going to give a synopsis. I don't know how you're going to attempt the plot summary, but suffice it to say, uh, yeah, shit happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that, like... So, this film basically technically starts immediately from the end of the last Bond film, which was Spectre, right? I think because... I think the Bond girl from the last Bond girl film was Madeline Swan. I'll be yeah. honest, I have no recollection of Spectre. I just remember it was not a very good film, but I I don't I barely have a recollection of what what happened in that film, right? So anyway, like at the beginning of this Bond film, Bond is swanning around with Madeline Swan, and they're like he's kind of retired or something like that, and like they're on a honeymoon or I don't know if they're married. They're just like they're together, I guess, right? And then you know there's a sort of classic sort of Bond opening style thing where there's a great action scene. Bond leaves Madeline Swan at the train station, and then. It flashes forward to five years later, and Bond is approached by Felix Leiter to sort of infiltrate some party. Some there's like some device that is being like some global super weapon, which is being traded. Or actually, even before that, you see this heist on this lab where MI6 are developing some global secret weapon. It's like some weird nanotechnology virus thing where it can target a specific person if you have their DNA. Anyway, the entire plot of this film kind of revolves around this nanotechnology virus thing called Hercules. Is it Hercules, Jerry? What's it called? Hercules? Heracles. Heracles. Heracles, the Greek version of Hercules. Yes. (laughs) Um, Heracles. And yeah, so it's basically about Bond trying to uh, find who's taken Heracles, right? Because, you know, early in the film, they're trying to find this Heracles uh, virus. They think they've tracked it down to this sort of spectre party. And then it turns out that someone else has hijacked the Heracles virus and he kills the entirety of Spectre. And so, but then now this evil person has access to Heracles. His Bond has to go and track down Heracles, right? Um, along the way, he kind of finds out, um, he reconnects with Madeline Swan. Spoilers! Madeline Swan is given birth to Bond's daughter. All of a sudden, Bond has a family, kind of. Um, and, you know, so oh, he has more to fight for, apparently. And then there's also, like, various, you know, there's 007 now, who is a black lady who is kind of, I, I think she's fine, right? But basically, she's taken over Bond's 007 call sign. Not that that really even matters. She's just a spy. She helps Bond. They attack this... <laughs> massively cliched poisoned island where the big baddie is 
and like the film is about them blowing up the poison island where all the evil poison nanobots are kind of like i i'll be honest i i think the plot of this film is really dumb really really dumb but i'm preempting my thoughts on this um okay actually i will preempt my thoughts on this in my mind and because we're going to do this absolutely right so as we go around the table i want everyone to have a think about where does this film sit on the daniel craig bonds and for me like casino royale and skyfall are like a level above all of the other films and i'm kind of not sure like so quantum of solace and spectre are definitely at the bottom and this film definitely in my mind sits between the really good ones and the really bad ones but i'm not sure whether it sits closer to the really bad ones or closer to the really good ones so i don't know if that's going to be a controversial opinion but i'm going to throw it out to everyone else who wants to talk about no time to die first Mags, why don't you why don't you shoot first? I will save Jerry to last because he is the Bond fan, so so he can he can he can sort of wrap everything together. Mags, why don't you shoot first? Okay, okay. <laughs> um, so for me, um, I thought Daniel Craig was a fantastic pick for Bond when he was first revealed so many years ago, and it was like two thousand and five as the hope for rebooting the franchise for um, a a modern audience. Um, Casino Royale, when it came out and I saw it, I absolutely loved that movie. I loved the story. I loved the character of Bond. I loved the relationship that he had with Vesper Lind, played by Eva Green. And that remains my favourite movie in the Daniel Craig Bond franchise. Um, That was a movie where they revealed a Bond who was classically an action movie star um, and also I suppose the Bond that we've known from the past who's very strong, focused on queen and country but in Casino Royale also um, shown to be capable of love, quite brittle um, and um, then someone who was broken when he was betrayed when he found out that Vespaline was actually an agent of Spectre. So that was sort of the Bond that I got to, to know throughout the series um, for this movie, I've got to say I've got quite mixed feelings about it. Um, there are things in the movie that I feel that they deliberately made differently. So they made choices to make this Bond quite a different Bond um, compared to what we've seen in the last few movies. And to be honest, the aspects of the movie that I didn't like the most as well. Um, so, for example, for me, the love story with Madeline Swan, the twist of Bond as a family man, and with both of those um, aspects, a man that's driven by love rather than love for the country. Um, the shift to a more loquacious bond with more lighthearted banter. So for me, those are all characteristics of a bond, uh, not the bond that we've come to know as played by Daniel Craig. Um, and then also because it, it was... Um, a movie that followed Spectre, and it wasn't really clear at the end of that movie whether or not Daniel Craig would actually do another one, Um, they needed to create a new villain. And I think in this movie there was really a lack of a real villain relevant to that broader Daniel Craig Bond universe. Um, Some other little things I didn't quite like, I thought some of the transitions between scenes were quite strange. So, for example, there was a, um, a scene where... Um, it finishes with Bond sitting in the lifeboat and then it cuts to him in London. And that 
I thought transition was quite strange in time and also difference in the in the scenes. And then there was a scene um, of him in London after the prison vi- visit to Blofeld, um, and then it cuts to him in Norway at Madeleine Swan's home. And it's not really clear um, how he knew he would be there and then why she decided to keep living there um, after what had happened. So that didn't make sense to me either. Um, I thought some of the side characteristics characters were really superfluous um for example the sidekicks of blofeld the eyeball guy and then the sidekick for rami malik who also turned out to be eyeball guy and then cia guy um totally superfluous oh this is Um, the american cia the whatever his name is i can't even remember his name now like yeah yeah, felix Leiter's offsider who turns out to be a traitor right yeah yeah oh logan ash that's right that guy yeah that guy um (laughs) And then I guess Rami Malik um, Safin, it turned out to be quite a, a weak villain with almost no motivation. So I thought that was a shame. Now, the things that I really enjoyed about the movie, I thought it was a great kind of, I think, or suspect that the um, writers and, and the director of the show, of the movie was also using this movie as an opportunity to do a bit of a greatest hits collection of campy Bond which I thought they did really well. So we have the return of the gadgets, return of some of the humour, like that scene where he's lying on the floor of the um, stairwell and he's electrocuted eyeball guy with his, like, fancy gadgety watch. And then they have that line, you know, I showed, I showed your, um, your watch to someone. He really... It really blew his mind. It really blew his mind. I thought that was a great... That was like a... Bond. Roger Moore line or a Pierce Brosnan line, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, and then, like, really funny, you know, kind of um, technology, like the eyeball, and then funny lines related to the eyeball, and then the nanobots, which I thought were hilarious as well. Um, I thought the first 20 minutes or so of the movie was amazing. Classic Bond. Related to that, the action sequences, wow. So the opening in Italy, I thought that was fantastic. Um, the chase scene in um, oh, Finland or Norway, now I can't remember which country, um, where um, he goes to Madeline Swan's family home. Ah, the four-wheel the... drive chase, right? Is yes. that what Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the four-wheel drive chase ending in the car in this sort of cat and mouse sequence in the misty forest. I thought that was amazing. The fight scene in the tower on the on the island, I thought that was fantastic as well. Um, and then related to that, the cinematography with the action sequences, I thought that was fantastic, particularly those big wide shots. Um, the staging and framing of some of the shots, so the way the movie starts with Safin, you, you know, you start from Safin's perspective, looking at Madeline Swan's family home over the ice and then slowly going across the ice. And then that whole... Um, opening of the movie is filmed almost like a horror movie which I thought was really cool um, I thought the therapy session where uh, uh, Madeline as an adult meets Rami Malik as an adult for the first time that felt quite intimate and I thought that was really well filmed and then I also liked the prison scene um, where Bond and Madeline Swan go to um, Blofeld cell and he's revealed to the audience almost like this theatrical production I thought that was very um, very cool and sort of harkened back to that kind of 60s Bond mm. um, I really enjoyed the two Bond girls so Paloma in Cuba and Nomi who 
takes on the 007 number as secret agent after Bond. I wish they used them more. Um, I thought that their action sequences were fantastic. Um, they were portrayed as real professionals and um, excellent at their job. And I thought um, the actress who played Paloma, who I think was also one of the Charlie's Angels. No, Anna de Armas what? plays Paloma. She was in Blade Runner 2049. Uh, like, she's, true. yeah, like, she is, like, she's smoking tight, I'll be honest. <laughs> I mean, it is what it is, right? I'm just stating facts, okay. right? But, like, she, like, she's amazing at this film, yeah. But she's in oh, here very, very little, right? So, yes. yeah. I thought she she's really charismatic, so yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a fantastic pick. She was in Knives Out. That's it. With yeah, she's a, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Um, and then I guess with some of the other characters, Money Penny Q, I really like them as characters, and I thought they're well cast. So, wish they were used more. Felix, um, I thought that was a fitting end. Um, and then again, Rami Malek, great actor. Wish they had actually given him a character to actually act. Yeah. I mean, I think you've touched on something here, which I, I kind of struggled with, because I, I don't really know where I sit on this film, right? And just hearing you speak about it, Mags, one of the things that kind of strikes me is that, like, I think the big dissonance for me in this film is that some of the stuff is actually executed really well. Like, some of the action, the cinematography, the way these things are shot... Um, even the sound, like I want to say, that there are some there are sound bits with the action that I think are really, really well done, right? Um, like, I think there's like a there's like a deft hand with the way this film is kind of directed, but <laughs> I feel like the plot and this I don't know if it's script, but there's something about the plot that it doesn't quite sit so you have like this really high quality of execution in the technical aspects of the film but then in terms of the story there's something quite childish about it in some ways even though it's meant to have that gravitas and for me that's kind of like the dissonance there that's why i'm I'm trying look i don't know maybe it isn't right but i'm trying to like sort of rationalize in myself why this film doesn't quite hit for me and like potentially that that dissonance is is what it is right that that the fact that you liked all of these aspects, and I agree, like some of these, some of those aspects are really well executed. But I don't know for some reason, like I, I think the story, this whole love story, which is so central to the plot, the whole dumb Saffron revenge story, him as a villain, the actual his backstory as a villain and his plan, like even this whole idea of a poison island just seems so dumb, right? So. I don't know. There's a lot of dissonance there for me, which makes it hard for me to like sort of wholeheartedly love this film. Anyway, um, sorry, Max. Was should we go on to someone else or someone else, or is there other stuff that you want to talk about? No, no. Let's let's hear what other people think. Um, Andrew, why don't you shoot next? Oh gosh, uh, yes, I will. <laughs> um, <laughs> I agree with like my, pretty much everything Mags has said about it. I thought the opening. Um, where you're in that ski lodge type home um, and there's someone coming, walking there from a distance and then you can't see anything and then boom, there they are at the window just like a horror movie. It actually made me scream and I'm like, what are we watching here? This This doesn't feel like a Bond movie. But that whole sequence was amazing. The way that scared little girl jumps out of that bed with a gun and shoots that guy down was amazing. Um, the sequence that followed where she's running across the ice and he's chasing her, 
terrifying when she falls in and he kind of looks at it and he decides to save her was it felt moving you know like he'd kind of decided wow this girl's a survivor and I'm not gonna let her drown because she's impressive um so that whole thing I loved it um the first action sequence with with Bond was so good right it was I just kept saying wow and I initially thought this is going to be even better than Casino Royale and Casino Royale is the only Bond movie I like and I have kind of watched them all sort of because my parents loved Bond so I grew up with that I just couldn't really pay attention to any of the movies Casino Royale is the only exception I've seen it many times I love it every time anyway so I thought initially this could be even better okay now I was a little bit distracted as soon as we started having the sex scenes with Bond and the love interest someone just tell me what's her name Madeline 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 Swamp because of the enormous age difference between the two, it made me so uncomfortable. It's like a granddaughter having sex with her grandfather. And immediately, I don't, I'm sorry, guys. Anyone who feels like this is inappropriate, I respect your views and I disagree with them. I just <laughs> Have you seen other vaudevilles? Like when old Sean Connery? So old and she's so young. Look. I just, the fact that there are others doesn't make this one any better, okay? And it is very hard for me to believe that this is a deeper, true love when she's, like, one-fifth of your age, okay? And, you know, Bond looks even older than he actually is, which really doesn't help the situation. So I was a little uncomfortable, but, you know, I was feeling so positive towards this movie that I decided to look beyond it. But... Then it just kind of kind of goes downhill a little bit from there. Um, I think what I disliked about it was the love story with Madeline Swan. Okay, in some ways, it's the only part of the plot that makes sense because it's the only part of the plot that you can follow on an on an initial watch when you don't know what's going on because um, it's the simple part, right? Um, he fell in love with her. He thought that she had betrayed him. Um, then he finds out she didn't. He refalls or, you know, he reconnects with her. Then he nearly loses her and he has to try to save her. It's a simple. <laughs> Anisha, can I add though? Can I add to you that? Absolutely can. Because basically, <laughs> I, I, like for me, it doesn't work because he sees, he basically hangs out for her with a little bit at the, at the for a little bit at the beginning of the film and then doesn't see her for five years and then within five minutes of seeing her again he's like no, no, I'm no, in no. love with you again I'm like what? No, no, no. I'm, not saying, I'm not saying it rings true in fact that's exactly what I'm about to I'm about to like crush it in a second but I'm not saying it rings true I'm not saying it's authentic I'm just saying I can follow the plot I can follow what's happening and my biggest problem with Bond films is I can never follow what the, what the hell is going on okay but I understand what they're trying to tell us is happening but my issue with it and why I think it all falls down here is because it's so impossible to believe. Okay, first of all, you can't believe that he loves her in the first place. Like, why does he? What is so special about her and his connection that we believe that this is his true love? They've told us it is. In one of the, in the previous film, one of the baddies says, this is the one woman you could have had a real love with. I'm like, but, but why? Like, why? I don't see it. Like, with Casino Royale, look, 
even there, they fall in love too quickly. There's not really anything really there, but there's at least great banter and there is great sexual chemistry between the two of them. Agreed. Two of those things, Agreed. I'll take. That's enough. Okay? I, I'll accept those things as the basis for, you know, a true love. With Madeline Swan, there's no chemistry there at all, as there shouldn't be with your granddaughter, okay? And there's, <laughs> and there's also nothing about her personality that would make you think this man, this James Bond character, would fall for her. So I don't understand why they're in love in the first place. But, you know, at this point, I'm still willing to overlook everything because I'm just so impressed by how this film has started. But... As you go on, okay, so I see what they're trying to do here. They're trying to get him to have some emotional growth on the side of love by getting him to go back to his feelings for Vespa. So as I see it with Vespa, he fell in love. He found out that she, he thought she betrayed him, which was shocking. Then he finds out she wasn't trying to betray him. She was trying to balance the fact that she had now fallen in love with him, but was still trying to save the old boyfriend. And I don't think he really knew what to do with that information, okay? So then in the second film, he goes to find that old boyfriend and he finds out that he was just a, an asshole who played Vespa. And knowing that this lame guy played Vespa, for some reason it makes him devalue her. And he throws the love knot, the Algerian love knot, he throws it in the sand and he walks off because he's just lost respect for her. He's not able... He's not able to properly love her once he finds that out. Like, and to me, that just speaks to someone who, you know, doesn't want to let somebody in, would rather devalue them, would rather believe this person isn't worth anything because she was taken in by this guy, than come to terms with his loss and his feelings for her. So to me, like that, that was the only good part of that second movie because it's the only part that felt real and, you know, had emotions involved in it. So I thought, okay, great. They're trying to go back to that. And I loved that when he went to her grave, the the note that he left, that he burnt there, was it said, forgive me. Because, yeah, he, he that was the right thing to say because he devalued her and he minimized her for, you know, for something she didn't deserve. And I thought that was great, okay? So then when the... Um, the grave explodes and he very quickly suspects Madeline and he buys into the deception. That also did ring true to me, you know, because this man is only just about to reconcile himself with, you know, all of that history. He's just on that journey. He's just about to get there. And then this happens when he's right on the precipice of it. And it does ring true to me that that would reset him and he would immediately suspect the woman okay so the way he acts putting her on the train like it's very you know he doesn't give her the benefit of the doubt he acts very very rashly but this makes sense to me someone like him who's finally willing to be, try to become vulnerable and this happens right at that moment it makes sense that he would reset like this so he puts her on the train blah 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 what I don't believe is that he stayed in love with her for five years, okay? I do not believe that he was nervous at all when he met her again. Angry maybe, but nervous? No, I don't believe it. And that ridiculous moment where he goes back to her house and he says to her, at this point, he knows that, you know, she didn't betray him. I love that he just believes Blofeld. You know, whatever Blofeld says, I'll just believe that. Okay, <laughs> Blofeld tells me that she's betraying me. I'll believe that. Oh, now he's telling me, no, haha, gotcha. You spent your last five years thinking she didn't love you. I, that, that's not true. Well, I'll believe that then. Okay, 
doesn't make sense, but okay. So he turns up at her house and he says to her, I regretted putting you on the train and I've loved you every day since. This is not, this does not ring true. 100%. This man, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Especially the journey he's been through, you know, what happened at that grave, you know, the reset back to the man who doesn't trust, all of that rings true. But no, I loved you this entire time. I regretted putting you on the train, but I still didn't come find you. Doesn't ring true at all. And so I hated that that attempt to try to build that strong, deep bond love connection with her. I hated that because it just wasn't right. Didn't believe it. Didn't buy it. I did, however, enjoy his um, relationship with the daughter because the way he reacts with to, to her, like kind of just looking kind of startled that she's there and then trying to protect her, but not, you know, having a very limited amount of time with her. That to me strikes true about what would happen if Bond, if one of his sexual conquests had given rise to a child. I feel like that is how he would kind of, and it was a, you know, a little girl that, that to me, that is how he would, you know, respond in that situation. And I, I really kind of enjoyed watching that. And I think Daniel Craig um, played that well in that he allowed me to feel some emotions there. Um, from him towards her and it felt authentic. It didn't felt overplayed to me. Um, anyway, the, I've realized that what I hate about Bond films is I can't follow the plot and that was true here as well. Um, Gerald had seen this movie before and I think he'd probably listened to a lot of podcasts and stuff as well by the time I had watched the movie, you know, I get, got to like stop every 10 seconds and get him to tell me what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. And he wasn't so annoyed by my interruptions that, you know, he wasn't willing to answer. This is usually the case, right? So <laughs> he was more than happy to fill me in, which meant that I could follow, which really helped with my enjoyment of the movie. And that's why I would say this is my second. I'd rank this movie number two in mm. all the Bond movies just because I could follow it. I just can't follow any of the others. And even Casino Royale, I can't really follow the plot development, but there's enough going on character development-wise and character relationships-wise that I can stay interested in it. Um, but usually the problem with Bond films is you can't follow the plot. There is nothing going on in terms of character development. There is nothing going on in terms of the characters' relationships with each other. And so there's no plot and there's none of that. Then what, what, what is it that we're supposed to enjoy? Is it actually just the action coupled with this suave, you know, shiny, smooth James Bond figure? I guess that's what it is. But for me, that's not enough because I find him misogynistic and unlikable. And I find his, <laughs> like, I find his dad jokes to be really cheesy and like not funny. So, you know, that's probably why. You know, I don't, I don't like them, but this is number two for me. But like, you know, let me just go on to say that the plot here, it's not, it's not awful. It becomes awful when we, they ask us to believe that the villain is just your stereotypical Bond villain in his Bond lair. Okay. Acting like all the other lame Bond villains act. And they expect us to believe that the Bond villain is so taken with Madeline Swan, the little girl that he rescued, that he's willing to risk his entire venture and life in order to capture... He knows that Bond's going to come after him. He knows that Bond is the best foil out there to all villains in the universe because 
he always has foiled them. Um, he's willing to risk all of that just so he can take Madeline and her daughter. Like, why? I, it didn't ring true to me. Like, have you been in love with her all this time? If so, why have you just allowed her to be, like, running around in the world? Why are you taking but, her but now? The, the, and, the, you know, sorry. <coughs> sorry, Anja. <coughs> sorry to interrupt you, but... No. no, I agree with you, because the film actually doesn't also sort of elaborate... It's not like this villain is constantly throughout this film pining over Madeline Swan. Like, when he started yeah. talking about, like, how he was kind of in love with her, I was like, isn't this, like, the first time you've kind of really mentioned it? Like, previously yeah. you kind of saved her right. life, and there's this weird, ambiguous relationship between you. And I thought it was maybe, like, you know, you owe me something, right? And that's why I want you here, because you're a tool that I can use, because you owe me something. But he starts going on and on about how he's... It's like, what is going on here? Like, when, when yeah, did this thing happen? Yeah, he's acting like she's the love of his life. It's really freaking weird. And I felt that was insulting, because, like, and to be honest, I find Bond films insulting in general, because I don't feel like the people who make these films put any effort in them beyond making Bond look really shiny and, like, suave. And getting the really hot girls to play the Bond, I just hate it so much. I hate this franchise so much. Anyway, so, <laughs> so not only was I offended, okay, not only was I offended that, like, you know, they expected us to believe that, which I just thought was lazy and stupid. Like, you want a reason for why he's kidnapped her and just won't let her go? And, like, it's just not a good reason. But then I felt even more insulted when right towards the end and they're making an escape He's got the girl, and he just goes, oh, what, you're going to bite me? Okay, well, just go then. Like, <laughs> what? Like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. He lets her go. Yeah, he like, he she's his insurance go. policy. And he just lets her go. It's, it's so, so weird. Stupid. Like, the yeah. way he acts doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's like, so lazy. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't work out how that is meant to all come together like it just seems so lazy like they couldn't be bothered putting any time and effort into figuring out those details okay um so look yeah so when it when it comes to it i you know didn't like that at all and like that's the climax like that stuff has to make sense like max was saying the villain has to be good it just can't be another dumb bond villain now the women um look i love that we're finally making some progress in terms of not seeing like every woman on the show is just a sexual conquest for bond to to have sex with and then throw aside or kill it's, it's nice that we've kind of you know moved a little bit away from that i do like that but what i didn't like you know the the female bond the new 007 okay i loved her she's great Loved every part of it. What I didn't like about it was when she decides to give the double O title back. I, now, I knew that this was going to happen. Okay? I knew that the new Bond was going to give 007 his um, title back before I saw the movie because I think Gerald told me this. And I remember thinking, <laughs> oh, like, so, so when, they, when we first meet 007 and she hates him and she thinks he's shit, um, I remember thinking, wow, so something must really happen for him to earn her respect but he is never required to earn her respect in this movie nothing happens that would explain why she goes from thinking he's like lame and annoying and up himself and you know not to be respected to suddenly respects him so much she gives him her title her you know her number back you know like what it's like they didn't bother they did not bother giving us 
the obvious thing that's needed. Like he needed to have some interaction with her, save her life, do something noble that she witnesses, something. You know, they just didn't even bother. She was yeah. just gonna give it to him. Yeah, can so, I? Can- can I add mm. something to that? So, Go for it. yeah, I, I look. I I agree with you. As in, I agree that the scene where she gives him the 007 call sign again is really like slothfully done. It, it feels. It doesn't feel like it belongs in the film. It actually adds nothing to the film, right? And I, I think mm. it actually misunderstands, um, like the audience as well, because I think they did that because there's been a lot of pushback recently about. Um, on sort of um, subversion of expectations and subver- you know like tr- you know traditional heroes being undermined right by sort of new heroes right and I guess the issue here like the issue here is I don't think people have an issue with her being 007 and I think actually it was done in an interesting way where Bond is not seen as I think look I guess to clarify my point here, right? I think there have been films and TV series recently where traditional heroes, like, and I'm probably looking at Luke Skywalker the most, right, in Star Wars, have basically been shown as completely useless in new films, and someone else just comes and basically is, like, amazing, and, like, the old hero is useless, right? But in this case, that was actually not the way Bond was portrayed, right? They were portrayed as both professionals who fully knew how to do their jobs. So it wasn't like the film was disrespecting Bond in order to put her, like, sort of introduce this character, right? So I think that in Mm. itself is enough, right? All fans of existing heroes want is you don't disrespect the existing hero to put up another character, right? And they didn't Mm. do that. And so you didn't need for her to go that extra mile and kind of go, oh, you can have the 007 back because... Like that's it didn't really make sense in that kind of scenario, and Con- Bond was kind of just standing on his two feet as well, and so was she. It was fine, right? Like you didn't need to go that extra mile, right? So I felt like mm. yeah, one hundred percent. I fe- felt like they went overboard, and I don't know if it was because they were afraid of fan backlash, but I don't think if they did that, they didn't understand why there is fan backlash on some of this stuff in the first place. Um, yeah, because Bond wasn't portrayed what as incompetent. Like, the reason why they came to some sort of detente was because they saw how each other um, operated in that mission in, I can't even remember where, where the Spectre Party is, right? Where they meet, Mm. like, Paloma, right? So they see... Cuba, yeah, that's right, yeah. So in the Cuba mission, they see each other operate and they kind of, like, sort of try to thwart each other. And so some sort of professional respect is built up there. But that's enough, right? Like, that should be Mm. enough. Anyway, that's that's my two cents on that. Agree. Um, okay, let's just move to the end. Okay, so <clears throat> I hate this sort of ending. I hate it when they <laughs> when they decide that the way to arrive at a powerful conclusion is just to kill the character off. This is just pure manipulation, right? Of course we will feel something if you kill the character that we are rooting for. And in the case of James Bond, of course people are going to feel a whole lot because, you know, they've lived with him for a long time. He's never died before. But, you know, it's, again, it's lazy and it's cheap, okay? And I hate it when that's the the route they want to go. Instead of giving us a proper ending that can still be impactful, that we can still feel something from, you know? Like, 
Why can't they just put the effort into that? And that is the problem with this entire franchise. They just don't put any effort into it. And with this particular Daniel Craig franchise, I actually find it very annoying that in every film they draw in some sort of personal element, but they never expand on it or actually make it significant. For example, Skyfall, um, I guess in the no, Skyfall, it's his house, right? But what significance does it have? Like, why does that matter? Like, what do we learn about him or the house or anything from the fact that his house is in it? Nothing. He just happen- He just decides to take M to his house. And we're going to call the movie Skyfall because it's his house, okay? But it doesn't mean anything. Similarly, Blofeld. Okay, so it's going to be his adopted, you know, a foster brother or adopted brother. Great. Okay, so so what's going on with their relationship? Why, why do they hate each other? Oh, because... Her dad just loved Bond a little bit more. Um, that's every sibling relationship. There's always a favorite sibling, okay? The other sibling doesn't decide they're going to hate their sibling and turn into a supervillain and dedicate <laughs> their life to bringing their sibling down. That's ridiculous. Like, you just inserted a brother in the, in the, in the show, but you didn't make it meaningful. You didn't do anything with it, you know? So, I just... I, I wish they hadn't gone that route. You didn't have to bring all these personal elements in if you weren't going to do anything with them. And if you do bring them in and you don't do something with them, then I feel cheated. And I feel like I was supposed to get something from that and I didn't. And it's it's annoying. And, you know, it, it just goes to the creation of these films being cheap and lazy, just like the end. I'm just going to finish on a positive note. The action was great. I noticed that there was very little hand-to-hand combat, which made me think that, you know, as Grandpa... Grandpa Bond is probably tired, and I understand that, okay? Full respect to that. I don't want Grandpa Bond getting injured, and so minimize the hand-to-hand combat. That's fine. It was it was still an amazing action film. I thought the, cor- the cinematography was amazing, and I thought that gun barrel shot where he is, you know, right towards the end of the movie, where he... You know, you know the, you know the in the credits you have a gun barrel sequence where yes, yes, yeah, and then they kind of he shoots through the door and the door is circular, right? Like he's running through the base and there's this circular bulkhead and he shoots a guy and I was like, that's very clever. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic, and the cinematography reminded me a bit of Skyfall, and I thought it was fantastic. So, um, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I'll leave it to Darren. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So look, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be brief because I, I want Jerry to talk. But um, look, I, I agree with you in a lot of points. I probably don't hate Bond as much as you do. Like, I guess for me, being a boy, like as a kid, I kind of, you know, like having a dumb sort of male fantasy spy film with like, you know, crazy hot women. Like, I was okay with that. Like, I mean, I think like <laughs> it's probably targeted at that sort of male demographic as well. I'm, I'm okay I with it. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. I think that's exactly, <laughs> exactly yeah. why it's so successful. Yeah. But having said that, I do actually agree with pretty much everything you've said, right? It, like, I don't, I guess the only difference is I don't have, I guess, an innate bias against Bond, right? So I think, like, yeah, 100%, I think the cinematography in this was really great. Like, one of the great things about this film is that I feel like the director was able to find the balance between shaky cam, that sort of visceral aspect of the shaky cam, but still letting you know exactly what's going on, right? So that scene where Mag- that Mags was talking about at the beginning, where he fights his way up to the top of the tower to where the missile 
silo controls are. I thought that was like a super cool scene, right? Because it has this really sort of gritty, in-your-face sort of fight style. But at, but at every point, and there is a shaky cam element to it, but you know exactly kind of what's going on. And then they use sound in that as well, right? So when the gunfire goes off, there's like the tinnitus, like those sort of your ears are ringing. I, I really love that. It, it really brings the audience into that scene and makes the scene, those action scenes, really intimate, right? But... At the same time, it's not so intimate that you have, just have no idea what's going on. You absolutely know, like, what is going on with all of the action. I thought it was, like, really brilliantly done, right? So I think the action in this, in this film, 100%, is amazing. But, yeah, agreed with Anager. Like, I think for me, like, this film kind of, like... And, and the way Mags talked about it as well, right? Like, this film kind of starts off really strong. And then gradually, as more of the plot gets introduced and more of the emotional inverted commas elements get introduced, I feel like the wheels just slowly start coming off, right? And, like, <laughs> look, I and I know all of this stuff, it's kind of like your personal opinion when those wheels kind of completely fall off. But, like, for me, the point where it fell off was then when they started talking about the villain and his stupid Poison Island. I still can't get over it. Like, it's so dumb, right? He has a, like, MI6 is talking about, like, oh yeah, Safin has a Poison Island. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, what make constitutes a Poison Island, right? And then you go to the island and it is actually this sort of cliche supervillain thing where, like, they've got sort of all of the henchmen are bowing when the the sort of supervillain walks past and he's obsessed with obsessed with, like, Japanese culture, and then you have, like, the legions of, like, suit, like henchmen factory workers and stuff, and at one point one of the walk- workers falls into a vat of the poison and starts, like, melting. I was like, what is going on here? This feels like a parody, almost, right? Like, because <laughs> I feel like part of the, um, the sort of, I guess, the... Um, style of the Craig films was that it was trying to be more real. It was trying to get away from that Pierce Brosnan, Roger Moore style of Bond, where you have like this sort of sort of mustache twirling supervillain stroking the cat, that sort of thing, right? And then all of a sudden, at the back end of this film, like it's capped off this Daniel Craig series with like exactly that cliche. It was so weird. It it, it just it so didn't work for me, right? It, it really didn't work for me. And add on top of it that, you know, for you to accept that Bond was just going to go to his death, you really had to buy into that emotional relationship with um, Melon Swan. And as has been said by Mags and Anja, like, I, I did not buy into that relationship at all, right? Like, I, I've said this separately to Mags. I, I feel like... Um, the Vesper Lind, uh, look, obviously Vesper was dead by now, right? But like, Vesper Lind relationship felt much more real than the Madeline Swan relationship. Um, I think it was, I, I don't know what, I think Anager mentioned that there was chemistry between like Daniel Craig and Ava Green. I agree with that. I think there were also like scenes in that film, like there's this scene when in Casino Royale where Bond is sitting with Vesper Lind in the shower. There's like these really intimate scenes there which are kind of like, not sexual, but kind of feel like yeah, okay, like, this is where people sort of bond, right? And those relationships kind of form. But, yeah, I, I didn't really feel that with Madeline Swan. So, yeah, like, I, I would tend to agree with Anija that I feel like they killed Bond to make this a memorable film rather than, like, they really needed to kill Bond at the end. 
Anyway, that's it's kind of like my two cents. I don't want to talk for that much longer. Jerry, why don't you shoot, mate? Did you like this film or not? I did not not like this film. Um, in, <laughs> many ways, think, in many ways, I think this movie is the sort of perfect microcosmic encapsulation of the entire Craig era of James Bond in the sense that it's very ambitious, uh, promises a lot at the beginning, and then kind of degenerates into silliness. Um, and that's kind of the story of the, fi- of the, of the five films altogether. Um, there, there is, th- this film wore its ambition very much on its sleeve. I'm not sure if you guys noticed this, but in the shot where you first see uh, Bond and Madeline Swan in the Aston Martin DB5 driving um, through the hillside towards Matera in Italy, the music um, segs very briefly into the theme from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And that was kind of the tip-off for me that shit was going to go down in this movie, that one of these two people uh, wasn't going to be alive by the time the credits started to roll. Because as we know, that's the movie in which Bond gets married and his wife is brutally killed um, in the final moments of the film. Well, the ending, so, the ending credits of this film is like the, the song, song from... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Of, yeah. 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 And, and the characters keep saying to each other, we have all the time in the world, which is the line that George Lazenby's Bond says at the very end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service as he's cradling Tracy's dead body um, in his arms. So there was obviously... A re- there, there's been increasingly a recognition that On Her Majesty's Secret Service, because it tells a, a much more emotional story, is arguably one of the top three Bond films of all time. And this finally, finally the, the producers of the Bond franchise have started to embrace that movie instead of seeing it as the black sheep in the family. And by using that musical theme, they were signaling, particularly to those in the know, that this is this is this movie was going to swing for the fences and swing very very hard. It was going to, it was it was aspiring towards telling a story with the emotional resonance of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And the signal was to the audience, be prepared to have your heart broken. And so there's that there's that ambition there and a sense of perhaps even self-seriousness, uh, which characterised the, the Craig era at times. So strong start, just as Casino Royale was a strong start to this particular phase of the Bond franchise. And then, of course, um, it degenerated into silliness um, with the Poison Island and Safin having a, pl- having a plan which made no sense and no real motivation. Um, we... It, Safin's motivation runs out by about the Cuba scene because we know that he's on a he's on a revenge mission against Spectre, and he's wiped out Spectre within the first third of the film. And so, what's driving him now? Why why does he want to use the nanobots in order to wipe out like a third of humanity? Not explained. Um, <laughs> and so that's that's extremely good. And we get, of course, to the to the to the to the to the Bond death, which I've got mixed feelings about. Um, I don't think it was quite as cheap and manipulative as you and Adja thought, but it certainly was cheap and manipulative. But at the same time, I kind of think it was necessary. And, and here's my theory for why. Um, until Spectre, I was of the view that Die Another Day was far and away the worst Bond film ever made. That was the last Bond film with the invisible car and all that nonsense. But Spectre, in my view, was even worse. Not because it was on its own a worse film than Die Another Day, but because 
it inflicted more long-lasting damage um, on the Bond franchise because what it did was it it, it gave it, it it gave it an account of Bond's backstory which was utterly ridiculous. The, the story that that Blofeld was Bond's adoptive brother was stolen from Austin Powers Three, where you where it's revealed <laughs> that Doctor Evil is Austin Powers' brother. <laughs> Austin Powers Three is a parody of Bond, and Bond stole a significant <laughs> character beat from Austin Powers. So, f- for my money, th- there is no, there is nothing worse in the entire Bond franchise than Spectre and what it did to the Bond backstory, to the broader Bond universe, uh, and to the to the to the meaning of the relationship between Bond and Blofeld. And and I think the producers of the franchise kind of realized that and thought the only way we can rectify this is to kill this incarnation of Bond and to reboot completely to make sure to to make sure to the audience that the entire Craig sub-series within the Bond franchise is its own self-contained universe, separate from everything else that's preceded it and separate from everything else that will come after it, in order to cauterize and contain the damage inflicted upon the franchise by the revelation that Blofeld was Bond's adoptive brother. And so for my money, simply because it cauterized the bleeding caused by Spectre, because it confined the damage that that film had inflicted upon the franchise i was okay with bond dying i wasn't terribly moved by it but i was kind of grateful that it happened because it meant that we could sort of see the bond the 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 series of bond five films uh done by daniel craig as something separate from the others in the franchise because what we what we saw prior to craig was that even though these movies don't have much by way of continuity and it makes no sense that this bloke doesn't age. There are hints at continuity between the films. So um, Tracy, Bond's wife, dies in Honor Her Majesty's Secret Service. In Four Your Eyes Only, jo- uh, Roger Moore begins the film by laying flowers at the grave of Teresa Vincenza, uh, Teresa Di Vincenzo Bond. In other words, Tracy. So we're told there that Roger Moore Bond is the same guy as George Lazenby Bond. And then in License to Kill, there's a reference that Felix Leiter makes on the day of his wedding to how Bond was once married. So Timothy Dalton is the same bloke as Roger Moore, who's the same bloke as George Lazenby. So those 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 Bond movies kind of occurred in their own universe, kind of occurred in the same universe, even though, ridiculously, this man never seemed to age. Then we come to Daniel Craig, and at first it kind of seemed as if he was in the same universe as well. We know that was a reboot. We know that Casino Royale was a sort of prequel to Doctor No because it's the origin story. But by the end of Skyfall, he walks into the office of Ray Fiennes' M, and it's the same office with the padded leather door, red leather door, and the same uh, beautiful old desk that the original M, played by Bernard Lee, occupied in Dr. No. So, so you realize, so you think that the franchise has come full circle. So up until that point, I thought this, these, that Daniel Craig was the same guy as the previous Bonds. But it turns out that he's not because he's Blofeld's brother and there's never been a hint of any fraternal relationship between Bond and Blofeld. And that was awful. And by, by, by sealing the Craig era off with, as a self-contained arc separate from the rest of the franchise. I think in many ways, as flawed as this film was, it actually um, 
contain what was a growing cancer upon the franchise in the form of the self-seriousness and the attempt by the producers in the Craig era to make these movies interconnected in a way that, like, in a way that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is. Jerry, so, let me ask you a question there, though, because in this film as well, there is a scene, I think, where M... Ray finds M is sitting in his office and it shows the previous M's and you see yeah. Judy Dench but yeah. I'm certain that the other paintings of the M's are like the previous M's from previous Bond films they are they are so there's a there's at one point they're in a sitting in a corridor and you see a portrait of Robert Brown who played M during the 1980s yeah the Roger Moore M right yeah 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 so the, the, the Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton M so yes you're right so the, the, there are these nods to um, M's past, and it, this is not the first time that we've seen this. I think famously um, in Goldeneye, Judy Dench's office featured a portrait of Bernard Lee, who was the very first M. Mm. So, so yes, if, if there are, the, I, I like to write this off as an Easter egg rather than a way to link um, this bond uh, to the universe of the other bonds. Mm. Um, so, I, I think, I think. I'm happy just to, to leave that be as, as an Easter egg and just mm. to imagine Daniel Craig Bond as something separate because ultimately um, that's probably the best way to see him as a sort of self-contained arc rather than anything that connects to um, the broader franchise because A, it makes no sense and B, um, it actually worsens the entirety of the, the franchise if, if the problems that afflicted the Craig era are allowed to feed into um, the other movies as well. Now, like you, I thought the 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 plot did degenerate in silliness after the you know, I think the movie reaches its high point in the uh, Bond Paloma Cuba sequence. Um, Anna de Armas is great in this movie. She is woefully underutilized because she's there for about ten minutes and then gone. And she has in those ten minutes way more chemistry than Daniel Craig has with Leia Sadu, who plays Madeline Swan. Mm. I mean, the, the, the level of chemistry between Madeline Swan and James Bond is, you know, at the same level as Harry Potter and Ginny Weasley. Uh, <laughs> just makes just makes no sense. It made no sense in Spectre when, without any prompting, any warning, any track being laid, uh, Madeline Swan declares that she loves Bond. I mean, bearing in mind that Madeline Swan is Mr. White's daughter, the same Mr. White who was part of the plot that, you know, got Vesperlin killed. So this all makes uh, no sense whatsoever. Um, so the high point is, is is the Cuba sequence. And I think it's kind of telling that, you know, Anna de Armas has way better moves in that sequence than, than um, creaky old Daniel Craig's. Because as Anna Jim rightly points out, the man looks old. Like he looks sort of Roger Moore, a view to a kill level old. And um, and you know he is looking he is looking creaky. But at the same time, there was banter. There was something playful about about their action scene together. And that's when the movie is probably um, at its most fun and exhilarating. And then what what happens thereafter is is very silly. And not just silly, but again, just a. Actually, Jez, can I just interrupt there? I actually yeah. think that after that scene, um, it's the death of Felix, right? And I actually yeah. think the emotional high of this film is the death of Felix Leiter. 
for me, that was a big deal, right? It was like Felix Leiter is like an ongoing character in this series. And the yeah. way they did the death of Felix Leiter felt more emotionally impactful than anything that comes after it. It's just no, my two that, cents. No, 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 that's, that's probably right. Um, and because Jeffrey Wright is such a good actor and the way the, the, the you know, you're, you're introduced early on in the movie to the, to the idea that he's got a family and the sort of even even in their dying moments, they still have they still have some playful banter between the two of them as Bond tries to to keep Felix Leiter alive and then try to resuscitate him. That's actually quite moving. It does pack a bit of an emotional punch. Um, but but then the movie does sort of become um, extremely silly. Now I, I have no problem. Well, I mean I do have a problem with the Poison Island because it is stupid, but. It's actually an idea stolen from the novel of You Only Live Twice, where Bond, the, the, the movie is very different from the novel. And in the novel, Bond goes to Japan um, where there is someone who may or may not be Blofeld holed up in a big castle in this island of Japan where he's growing a lot of poison plants that cause a lot of young Japanese people to commit suicide randomly. Now, I know it sounds stupid, but it's actually one of the better novels, one of the better Bond novels. And that's where the idea is cribbed from. And so to the extent that that was a callback to that to that idea, I was like, fine, I can I can live with this. But it is it is stupid. And, you know, Lucifer Safin, a.k.a. Lucifer Satan, is not a very well-developed villain at all. <laughs> His plan is stupid. And as Anager points out, the fact that he lets um, Mathilde go after she bites him, I mean, I realise, look, I get it. Kids can be annoying. And having to schlep them around while you're trying to destroy a third of humanity, it's not easy. But at the same time, you know, the fact that he, he lets her go so readily, even though she is like the biggest bargaining chip, well, this How about just pass her to one of his, like, minions? You don't have to carry <laughs> no, her yourself. No, no, no. Like exactly. that or lose her. Just pass <laughs> her to a minion. No, you're, 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 you're exactly right. And what are these, what are these minions for? If not to, uh, if not to, uh, you know, uh, carry around, um, annoying kids whom you need to use as bargaining chips while trying to destroy a third of humanity. So, you know, look, the, the third act, is in many ways, you know, sort of totally problematic. And the idea that sort of like M somehow has sufficient authority to order missile strikes on uh, Japanese, contested Japanese Russian territory. I mean, I'm sorry, but like one would have thought that such authority would only be reserved to the British prime minister, but it's not. M has that power. And you're like, what? Um, so look, I, I didn't hate this movie, um, and there were parts of it that I really enjoyed. And you know, for my part, I don't I didn't mind the killing the killing off of Bond um, for all the reasons I've outlined because it saves the franchise, and also because well, you know, sort of why not? You know, it's time to why not do something? Why not do something a bit different? Um, so, having said that, um, one leaves the Craig era somewhat unfulfilled because there was so much promise and potential from Casino Royale. Uh, we watched it again shortly before watching No Time to Die. And it really is a very, very good movie. Um, you know, the fact that the stakes are so much lower, um, the fact that, you know, there is so much less of the sort of, you know, grand guignol silliness of some of the, the more, ex 
the more eccentric and um, flamboyant Bond films made it seem sort of grounded. Yes, you had some of the influence of the of the Bourne franchise um, casting a shadow over Casino Royale, but at the same time, it kind of stood on its own and it offered so much. It was such a refreshing change to the profound, invisible cast silliness of Die Another Day. And so there was so much promise in 2006 when Casino Royale was released. And I think 15 years later, as we as we reflect on the Craig era, I think we have to say that in large measure that that promise was unfulfilled. It had moments of being fulfilled in the first half of Skyfall, perhaps, but Skyfall ultimately was a complete ripoff of The Dark Knight with a third act that was basically stolen out of Home Alone. So in the end, I, I actually think Skyfall is a is a very, very flawed movie and certainly nowhere near deserving of the praise that it's received from um, segments of the audience and the, um, you know, both both popular and critical. So, and then Spectre was, as I, for all the reasons I've said before, um, I think the very worst Bond film ever made. Now, this movie <laughs> did something to repair that damage, but at the same time, it was starting off a very low base. And even though there were moments of it that were rousing, and I didn't mind the, the, the attempt at sort of sending Bond off by killing him off um, in, a, in a manner reminiscent of, say, um, some, of the, some of the final moments of The Rock. Um, and, you know, the music was swelling, the, missile, the, the shot of the missile splitting up and landing all over the island. That was actually quite vis- visually striking. Ultimately, the, 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 the potential that um, Casino Royale offered audiences all around the world was ultimately, I think, never, never fulfilled. It, there, there were flashes of it in, in the subsequent films, but nothing that ever came close, I think, to matching it. Not a single relationship with a female lead um, that came close to what we saw between Bond and Vesper Lind. Um, no, no dialogue as snappy as the scene featuring Bond and Lind on the train as they made their way towards Montenegro. And so I was, I think, I'm quite over the Craig era. Uh, he was he was good in the role. There's no doubt about that. Um, he brought a level of pathos that very few of his predecessors had brought to the role. But he, neither he nor the producers, were able to to drag Bond out of the of the rut of silliness to which these films too often descend. So, you know. He never he never could escape the gravitational pull of the grand silliness of the the, the those parts of the franchise that that culminated in Die Another Day. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Jerry. Because if you think about the trajectory of a lot of the other Bonds, essentially, right? Like you think about those Pierce Brosnan films, and look, the Pierce Brosnan films were never that serious, right? But they did get increasingly more silly. I mean, GoldenEye was about one of Bond's, like, colleagues essentially going rogue, right? Which is, like, in some ways more self-contained. And then it just got dumber and dumber until the point where it was, like, the invisible cars. And I think you're right. Like, this, the Craig series, probably has not gone as dumb as the invisible car, but it is kind of like, I don't know, I, I guess the people who make these films, they just feel like they have to keep upping the ante, right? And 
by upping the ante, they just keep doubling down on like the Austin Powers, like as you said, the elements could, that could basically be seen as parody, right? Like they double down on those elements. Yeah. I yeah, mean, and, and and one of the striking things about about this franchise is, um, for at least since since Tomorrow Never Dies, they've had at the core of the writing team the same two individuals, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, and I think the two of them are actually complete hacks. They're crap <laughs> writers. They produce crap plots. They've got crap dialogue to the extent that there's any ever there's ever any good dialogue in these movies. It's because of other writers coming in. So Paul Haggis, Academy Award-winning screenwriter, came in to do a rework of the draft for Casino Royale. To the extent that there was wit in this movie, and there occasionally was, particularly in the form of like the Paloma character, that's because Phoebe Waller-Bridge was called in to do a bit of tidying up on the script of this movie. So Purvis and Wade are complete hacks. They're the guys who gave us. Die, die another day and I just don't understand how it is that they weren't sacked on the spot after that movie so they've somehow managed to survive through the entirety of the Craig era they'll no doubt write the first draft of the of the next film whenever it comes out and that they just have there's a distinct lack of um, imagination and um, you know awareness of story structure uh, on the part of those two, they, I mean, the, the, the movies are always overstuffed. They're always overlong. There are too many villains, too much going on, and the plots are convoluted. But ultimately, at the end of the day, they don't add up to very much. So Purvis and Wade, I think, are responsible for that. And this problem was something that could never uh, resolve itself during the Craig era, even though there were moments, particularly in Casino Royale, when it looked as if it could have. And even Casino Royale saves us suffers from the same problem because the entire third act is kind of superfluous. That, that whole stuff in Venice makes very little sense. Um, so the final verdict, my final verdict on the, on the Craig era is that in, in Daniel Craig, they actually selected a very good James Bond, although not a James Bond who is as innovative as everyone says. I mean, people are always talking about how, you know, he's, he brought a really gritty edge to, to Bond and he was, you know, this, the, he had this great physicality and he was this sort of rough and tumble. I mean, guys, go back and watch the two Timothy Dalton films. Yes. Dalton was the most underrated Bond of all. He was Daniel Craig before Daniel Craig, and unlike Daniel Craig, actually looked like James Bond. So um, revisit those movies because they're actually pretty good. And because his tenure was so short, the, the Dalton movies never descended to the same level of silliness that the last Brosnan movie descended to or that Spectre descended to. Um, so, you know, you had you had a good actor in the form of Daniel Craig, but around him, you had probably, you know, and there was a there was a sheen of prestige about the Craig era, which none of which very few of the preceding uh, Bond films had. So you had Sam Mendes directing Skyfall, you have Carrie Joji Fukunaga directing this movie, you have Ray Fiennes as M, Naomi Harris as Moneypenny, Ben Whishaw as Q. I mean, seriously, you know, seriously talented actors in the supporting roles in these movies, but. The, the writing, the plotting, the um, setting up of the supporting characters, the setting up of the crucial relationships, the, the very, very flawed attempt to uh, create an interconnected cinematic universe along the lines of the MCU, all that, I think, fell flat on its face. And so to the extent that Bond's death in this movie sort of draws a line in the sand on that entire enterprise, then I say good. Mm. 
Yeah, um, look, I think that's a fair summary, Gerald. But I, I, I agree with that. I, I pretty much agree with everything you've said there, mate. Like, uh, yeah, I, I think... Yeah, I, I think... I think that insight about how this film is like a microcosm of that Craig, the Craig series of films is probably right because the film starts off super strong and just becomes like almost farcical by the end of it. Right. So yeah, I think, I think you're right. 100% right. Um, okay. Um, before we go, I wanted to ask, so this is kind of like a, like it's always the thing, right? Who's going to be the next Bond? Do you have someone in your mind, Jerry, who you think they're going to tap on the shoulder to be the next Bond? It's always someone who's a bit unlikely. It's, look, it used to be the case that it, it was the last guy, so um, or, or or a guy they'd asked before. So Timothy Dalton had actually been they'd actually approached Timothy Dalton to play the role when he was about. 22 years old in 1969 after Connery left. So that actually offered the role of James Bond in Honor Her Majesty's Secret Service to Timothy Dalton. And he was like, are you guys kidding? I'm way too young. Yeah. So he he sort of held off for another 17 years. Um, then they gave it to, to Roger Moore, who'd been actually one of the original people they considered casting in the role. Then when Roger Moore left, they, they actually gave the role to Piers Brosnan. Um, Brosnan then had to pull out because he was then contracted to act in another season of Remington Steel because the make it, the producers of Remington Steel heard that he'd just been cast as James Bond. So they decided to sign him on, exercise their contractual option for a new season. Um, so then he got the sack and Remington Steel got cancelled after three additional episodes. <laughs> and then when Dalton left, they offered it to him. So it kind of is always like the last guy they offer it to. Now, if that theory still applies then it could be Henry Cavill because he was like one of the last two or three. Is that they right? Were... They offered it to Cavill. No, no, no. They offered it to Jackman. Jackman turned it down. I think Jackman's too uh, old now. He's definitely yeah, Jackman's, too old. Jackman's too old now. and He's too nice two... a guy as well. Like... <laughs> the, last, the last two or three, um, the last two, I think, um, in 2005 were Cavill and Craig. Hmm. Uh, and they gave it to Craig. So... You know, some people are saying Henry Cavill. I know a lot of people are saying Tom Hardy. Look, I think Hardy would suck, not because he's he's just he's just too much like Daniel Craig. In other words, short and kind of broody. So, yeah. um, I, I think I think they need to go for um, a change. It's not going to be Idris Elba. Um, Do you think they're going to go for fun Bond again, or are they going to go double down yeah. on this sort of brooding Bond? Look, I think they're going to go for Fun Bond um, simply because um, I think um, they, they they feel as if they've done the, the, the broody, emotional, heavy stuff, even though none of it was particularly heavy already. So I think they're going to go to do Fun Bond. Um, you know, the same names come up. Richard Madden, a.k.a. Um, bloody... Um, Rob Stark. Rob Stark. Yeah. Um, Regé Jean Paul... I think the the guy who was in the um the that Netflix uh bodice bodice uh, Bridgerton. Yeah, Bridgerton. Um and who in was, some sense, who was he in Bridgerton? He's the main guy. Oh, okay. He, okay. Uh, and there's also been talk of Dev Patel. 
What? Um, no. But, it's not going to be anyone who's not white, okay? It's yeah. It's just not. Yeah. I, I, look, I, and I think, actually, there's a good reason for that, right? Because that's kind of the Bond character. You, like, I mean, part of that whole thing... I disagree. Yeah. <laughs> no. But, but he, the thing about Bond is he is, he is an Imperial relic, and... Um, so you can understand why they they would they would hang on to his his whiteness and maleness. Um, yeah. I, I, it just depends. It just depends on whether they want to hang on to this idea of Bond as a as a metaphor for faded empire, um, trying to grasp for relevance in in an age when post Brexit Britain has disappeared up its own asshole as a country of any relevance whatsoever. I don't think there is any advantage of holding on to that, but at the same time, there'd be way too much backlash if he was not white. No, that's probably that's probably right. You can just imagine, um, red, you know, there'd be subreddits that would just explode um, if they cast someone who wasn't white as James Bond, even though I think there'd be some actors, non-white actors, who'd be particularly good in the role. So, look, it, it's all... It, it's hard. I, I think it's kind of like picking the Pope, you know... Someone looks obvious until they're not. Well, I mean, Mags was saying to me that Nicholas Holt was being considered for Bond. I was like, there's no way, right? Nicholas Holt is... <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I, I, I personally... There's only, there's only one person I want and he's not being considered and it's Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> <laughs> no! He's like a surfie! <laughs> what? <laughs> he's like a great funny Bond. <laughs> I would love either Tom Hiddleston or Michael Fassbender. Yeah, look, Ooh, Michael I, Fassbender, I'd love that. I think Fassbender is the best Bond we've never had. Um, yes. And if you if you if you remember X Men First Class, um, the first half an hour, he, he openly admits that the, the he based uh, Magneto, particularly the first half an hour of that movie, on Sean Connery's portrayal of James Bond, and. Off the back, oh. off the back of that, he he would make a sensational bond. Except I think he's just too old. Yeah. Well, here's my left field proposal for the next James Bond, cousin Matthew from Downton Abbey. He's lost a lot of weight, so he's not as chubby <laughs> as he was when he was cousin Matthew, right? He's very English and he's very white, like <laughs> very Bond in my mind. Especially well, if you're going I'm for not... a more fun Bond. <laughs> Uh, Daz, if we're going to go down that road, I, can, can I can I can I offer Neville Longbottom, who, as we as we discussed the other day, is now hot. <laughs> it is. It's true. <laughs> and as we know, for some reason, on our screen presence, we we need hotness. So. Okay. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yes, that's that's true. Okay. So uh, yeah. Okay, well, I guess we'll see soon when they cast the next Bond. I've put my stake in the ground for Cousin Matthew. I don't even know what that actor's name is. What's his name? Dad Stevens, right? Dad Stevens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's his name. Yeah. So I'm I'm for Cousin Matthew. Jerry, <laughs> who, who are you for? Look, I would... Okay, I personally would love to see Death Patel in the role. <laughs> Dev Patel, no way. He, so he was so good in the Green Knight, and he's played like white characters already, like in the Green Knight, and like in David Copperfield. So why not just take it up to the next level and have him play James Bond? Okay, so Jerry is Dev Patel, Arager. 
Chris Hemsworth. Hemsworth. That's, that's the only person who could make this franchise redeemable for me. <laughs> Mags, who, 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 who's... Oh, Fassbender for you, Mags. Yes. Definitely. Okay, I don't know if any of us are going to win this, but we'll see. No. We've all got our stakes <laughs> in the pool now. <laughs> okay, look, thank you for joining me for a in- very interesting discussion about this uh, final Bond film in the Daniel Craig era. Um, I think that's pretty much everything we're going to say about this, right? Um, so we will be back with another film. Um, it's coming very close to the end of November. Um, which means that in Australia, June. early December, June is going to come out. Um, and everyone knows how much I love Blade Runner 2049 and Denis Villeneuve films. And in fact, I think everyone here on this podcast loves Denis Villeneuve films. And so there is a lot of excitement about that. Um, yeah, so we will definitely be back to talk about June. Um, I don't know if we'll talk about anything before June, but we'll figure that out. Um, so thank you very much, everyone, for joining me. Uh, tonight. It was a very interesting conversation. So, yeah, we'll see everyone soon. Say good night, everyone. Good night. Bye. Bye.